this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters Friday. Get tickets now. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Siobhan McCurgy, the host of New Books and Law. Today we'll be talking to Professor Robert P. Burns about his new work, Kafka's Law, The Trial in American Criminal Justice. Professor Burns is a professor of law at Northwestern University School of Law. Professor Burns, welcome to the show. It's good to be here. I wonder if you'd begin the interview by saying a few words about yourself, where you were born, where you went to school, and how you became attracted to studying criminal justice and legal literature. Okay, I, I grew up in New York City, actually, in uh, the, the neighborhood at the t- top end of Manhattan Island, Inwood, part of Washington Heights. Uh, I went to Fordham College and uh, then uh, went to law school at the University of Chicago Law School and got a, a PhD in the humanities, mainly philosophy of law, at the University of Chicago. Um, then I started working as a lawyer in Chicago. Okay, great. Could you tell us now how you came to write your current work, Kafka's Law? Yeah, I I suppose I should say that um, my legal practice in Chicago, I I started out doing uh, largely civil rights law and welfare law with uh, the local legal aid organization here in Chicago. And then I went to to Northwestern University and I, I worked in their legal clinic and uh, in that capacity, I did a lot of criminal um, a, a clim- criminal law. I, I represented criminal defendants in the criminal court and in post-conviction habeas cases and, and did that uh, a large part of my practice for about 15 years. So I got interested in the, in the, um, the actual workings of the criminal justice system from the inside because I was working as a criminal defense lawyer here in Chicago uh, during that time. I had been interested in studying that, and I did at, at the University of Chicago. Great professor there, Norval Morris, uh, very well known in as a criminologist. Hans Zeisel was also there. Um, so I, I had some academic background in that area, but uh, really uh, came to be engaged with it in my experience as a, as a criminal defense lawyer. And the the actual this particular book it was um, there was a bit of serendipity in it. I, I had written a couple of other books about the American trial. Uh, one was called The Theory of the Trial, and another one called The Death of the American Trial, which was about the the disappearance or vanishing of the uh, of the trial. And so I, I I thought I should pick up uh, Kafka's classic work on the trial and did that. And at the same time, it just by happenstance, uh, I was asked to uh, give a seminar to the um, Illinois state judges and a topic that we uh, came upon uh, as the topic for uh, that seminar. And there were hundreds of, of Illinois state judges was uh, uh, Kafka's, uh, was Kafka's the trial. Um, They, uh, there was in Chicago at that time. Well, there was a there was it at in Chicago at that time a a, a little group a troop 
that was performing a dramatic, dramatized version of Kafka's The Trial. So um, I got in touch with them, and we we put on a dramatized version of The Trial uh, before all the, the judges, and I, I uh, sort of created the commentary for that uh that uh, session for the Illinois judges. So as I did that, I, be, I was drawn more and more into the, uh, uh, the world of Franz Kafka. And uh, uh, there's, by the way, I should probably mention, there's a classic Orson Welles uh, film of the trial. And it's, uh, it takes a lot of liberties with the text, but um, it, it, you do get some sense of the power of the novel from Orson Welles' uh, version of it in uh, in the in the theater. He he himself, Orson Welles, plays the part of Hold the Lawyer. We'll we'll talk about him, I guess, in a few minutes. Um, but it's a uh, it's a uh, an imaginative representation of the uh, of Kafka's The Trial. That's fascinating. Isn't it? We, we don't have to dwell on this too long, but I find um, connecting law to theater very interesting. I think that's very cool uh-huh. that you put on a play about the trial. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. There was there there is um, it's it's still a good uh, it's it's a good way to sort of get yourself into the text of the trial by by looking at the Orson Welles um, uh, film. Okay. Um, could you briefly now describe the plot of the trial and give us some background about when it was written and by whom? Okay. Um, the trial is written by uh, Franz Kafka. Uh, Franz Kafka is uh, one of the great literary geniuses of the 20th century. Uh, he wrote in German. Uh, he was educated in German schools, although he himself came from a Jewish background. His father uh, rose up in the the Jewish peasantry in um, uh, in Central Europe in in Bohemia near near Prague. His father became a um, a store owner, storekeeper, and uh, and then Franz Kafka, the young Kafka, um, uh, went to study law. And he he was born in 1883. He received a doctorate in law uh, at the local university in in Prague, and. And uh, was sort of active in literary circles. There was, uh, uh, there were. He he wrote just a few short stories actually that were published um, before uh, uh, during during his lifetime. And uh, he went to work for a, what was called the Workers Accident Insurance Corporation after he got his doctorate in law. And that was a quasi-government or semi-government organization that had characteristics of our own um, Social Security Administration and OSHA, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration. So they both paid uh, out benefits to uh, injured workers. The, during this time, uh, there was a, a factories and industry were, were being built in Central Europe for the first time. And those, those, as in the United States, those new factories had very few safety precautions in them. Many workers were injured in the course of doing industrial work there in the new factories in, in Central Europe. And one of the functions of that organization that Kafka worked, worked in, and he worked there for uh, about 14 years, a very, very well-regarded employee. His bosses refused to allow him to be 
uh, drafted into the First World War because they said he was just too indispensable as a lawyer for that organization. So the organization paid out uh, benefits for, to disabled employees, but also like our OSHA, they, they engaged in some degree of regulation uh, of the workplaces so as to try to make the workplaces um, safer than they would otherwise be. And he, he did that work for a long time. Uh, wrote lots of memos on a policy level, uh, adjudicated some of the individual cases. And in that, in that uh, world, he really did come to know what the world of the law was like and also what the world of bureaucracy was like. So he understood bureaucracy from the inside uh, in his function of working for a quasi-bureaucratic uh, organization. Uh, he wrote the trial uh, just as the First World War was beginning in 1914 to 1915. And uh, the the trial, um, uh, together with, uh, was never published in his lifetime, uh, and nor were either of his other two uh, novels. They were uh, left incomplete at his death. He died of tuberculosis um, uh, in 1924. And uh, at a very early age, and those uh, manuscripts were edited into the form we have them now by his friend uh, Max Broad, um, who was a friend and, and literary uh, uh, associate of his. Um, and uh, so they were never published in his lifetime. And after he and just before his death, he left what might have been a half-hearted request that the manuscripts be destroyed after he he died. So they weren't really meant for publication in, kind, in any kind of a specific uh, way. Um, W.H. Auden, the great uh, uh, poet, said that Kafka was to his uh, century uh, much like Dante was to his or Shakespeare is to, uh, was to his. That is, the, the artist who most comprehensively describes uh, his era and the, the world that uh, human beings at that time were were creating for themselves and, and in which they uh, in which they lived so that's the background uh, the background to the to the work it's often been said that none of these novels and especially the, the trial is the is the manuscript that looks most like a novel it has a beginning middle and end but if you really look at them from the inside, what they're like actually is a series of parables and the various chapters, they were organized into chapters by Mr. Broad, uh, really are one parable after another where the same issues are played out in, in different sorts of keys as the novel uh, progresses. So that's, that's the background to the, the writing of the, of the trial. I, I should say that Kafka's works are always thought to be uh, extremely grim and uh, perverse. Uh, our word Kafka-esque uh, ca captures that. But many of them are very funny. The trial, many of the chapters of the, and scenes in the trial are enormously funny, even though it's, a, it's often a black uh, humor. When Kafka read the first chapter of his work to his friends for the first time, uh, they were all laughing so hard that he had just had to stop. They were, they were, they were tears of laughter were welling up in his eyes, despite the sort of grim uh, subject matter of the of the uh, of the text.
Let's connect this now to the American criminal justice system. Would you tell us what Justice Anthony Kennedy has said about the connections between the trial and the American legal system? Yeah, what he what he said was, and uh, that uh, I'll, I'll just quote him: uh, "The trial is actually closer to reality than to fantasy, as far as the client's perception of the system. It's supposed to be a fantastic allegory, but it's reality." It's very important that lawyers uh, read it and understand this. Uh, so those were those were Kennedy's words, um, and uh, I think that is uh, that is quite true. Uh, would you Would you like me to describe in sort of broad outline the the plot of the trial? Would that be helpful? Sure, that would be very helpful. Okay, so it begins uh, on the thirtieth birthday of the protagonist, who's uh, Joseph K. And uh, he is, he wakes up uh, from a, a night's sleep and uh, two people are in his room, two men are in his room and they inform him uh, that they are there to arrest him. Uh, and the, they, sell, they identify themselves as two guards is the translation we have, whose names are Wilhelm and Franz. Well, Wilhelm uh, and France are the names of the uh, the emperors and the kaisers of the of Austria, Hungary, and Prussia, who were about to plunge Europe into the nightmare of the First World War. So uh, Wilhelm and France show up in his uh, bedroom, and um, the uh, the notion is that uh, Joseph K is just emerging from his sleep. The uh, he is has that kind of weak uh, lack of control of his life that we have when we're just sort of half asleep. We're just emerging from the, the, the world of dreams and the world of nightmares. And then this, um, this encounter with these two guys show up. And they are, um, they are both funny and venal. They, they, uh, they eat his breakfast. Uh, they say, why don't you give us your clothes? Because if you go down to the, um, if you go down to the jail... Uh, your best clothes are going to be taken, so why don't you give them to us? And so they're they're kind of um, uh, scraping to get some kind of individual uh, personal advantage out of this uh, this episode. Um, Joseph K says, "Why are you here? I'm innocent. I haven't done anything uh, wrong." And they say, "Well, do you know what the law prohibits?" And and uh, Joseph K. says, and this is a theme for the entire book, no, I, I don't know what the law prohibits. And they say, how can you be innocent? If you don't know what the law provides, you can't know that you're innocent. You must feel guilty about something, don't you? And you've probably violated the law, haven't you? And uh, so the guards have this conversation with him, and then he's interrogated by a, a minister, basically a, a visiting magistrate, and he basically says to Front to uh, Joseph, "Well, you must feel guilty about something. How can you just proclaim your innocence?" And so there's this the beginning of this theme that we're all guilty of of something or other, and the political process can take advantage of our, uh, in a sense, legitimate feeling of guilt about things that we've done in our lives, but which the a certain kind of, uh, of, of regime can take advantage of. So that's the first scene. Then, then um, uh, Joseph 
is told that he's going to have a hearing, and the hearing is on a Sunday, so there's this play about the law's religious function, the relationship between the law and and um, and religion, and the, the collapse of the distinction between secular law on the one hand and religion uh, and the other, as well as the collapse between the rational world of law on the one hand and our own sort of murky psychological guiltiness on, on the other. So he shows up for this hearing. He's late. So again, a sort of nightmare quality. I don't know if you've had the nightmare in which um, you're late for something. You have to be too. And <laughs> most people have had that. So he's late and he can't quite find it. The address is not uh, clear uh, as to where it is. It ends up being in the top floor. The court sits in the top floor of this tenement building. And again, the notion here is the law isn't distinct from the ordinary uh, uh, social realities of life. Uh, There aren't clear lines between one thing and another. The law is ubiquitous. It's everywhere. The law is... um, So the hearing itself takes place in this large room on the top floor of this, this tenement. So he walks in there and he is... um, uh, he is uh, late. The, the, the magistrate upbraids him for being late. He takes an initially kind of arrogant position. I haven't done anything wrong. You guys are just persecuting me for no reason. And there uh, in front of the magistrate, there's a large audience that looks like a group of lay jurors, we might say. And half of the audience the, on the right side are uh, strongly on his side when he when he criticizes the court they cheer when he laugh when he tells a joke they laugh uh, and he thinks to himself well this is going pretty well uh, I'm able to convince this jury uh, that I haven't done anything wrong and they're on my side uh, these are ordinary people I can trust um, and then he goes down into the well there's, there's an event that takes place that draws him down into the well of the courtroom where the jury where the jury is, and this is this is the description that uh, Kafka gives: the faces that surrounded him, tiny black eyes darted about, cheeks drooped like those of drunken men, the long beards were stiff and scraggly, and when they pulled on them, it seemed like they were merely forming claws, not pulling beards. Beneath the beards, however, and this was the true discovery that Kate that Kay made. Badges of various sizes and colors shimmered on the collars of their jackets. They all had badges, as far as he could see. They were all one group, the apparent parties on the left and the right. And as he suddenly turned, he saw the same badges on the collar of the examining magistrate. Kay is shocked and he shouts, you're all officials. You're the corrupt band that I was speaking about. You've crowded in here to listen and snoop and you formed apparent parties and had one side applaud to test me. You wanted to learn how to lead innocent men astray. So what he hopes to be a fair-minded jury trial, we might almost say, uh, turns out to be just a, a um, an event completely controlled by this officialdom, by this uh, bureaucracy that's in the background. Um, and the, the, the hearing ends uh, with uh, 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 Joseph K. leaving uh, unsatisfied and uh, more and more convinced that uh, there is an, a dark organization uh, behind uh, his, his prosecution. Um, 
then he then there are a number of other episodes in the in the in the in the book. Um, he he finds his way into the offices of the law and meets some of the prosecutors of the law. And these are sort of a bureaucratic warren, one hallway leading after another. The air is stuffy. No light is allowed to get in. This is sort of the law, the inside of the law or the uh, the prosecution. Uh, and then he's convinced that he needs to go talk to a lawyer. And uh, he goes talk, he talks to a lawyer named Hold. Um, and uh, Hold is the character played by Orson Welles in the Orson Welles version of the of the trial. Um, he is uh, gives uh, uh, advice to Joseph K. Basically, t- tells him about the real world of legal practice or the courts uh, in the city where where they are in Prague, and basically says that n- none nothing of what appears to be uh, the ordinary legal procedures really. Uh, take place. It's all about influence. All the decisions are made behind closed doors. The legal formality is not really uh, respected. It's done. Everything is administered by an unknowable and isolated bureaucracy uh, that uh, can can never really be influenced, or at least we don't really have know that they can be influenced. Our best bet is that they can be influenced informally uh, but not through the ordinary legal procedures that uh, that we usually uh, engage in. Um, uh, Hull's um, uh, nurse is a woman named Lenny. Uh, Lenny begins to uh, try to seduce uh, Kay. Again, this notion of of the irrationality of sexuality is an important theme in the in the the novel. Uh, a part of the sort of organic. Uh, determinism of our psychic psychic life so sexuality in the novel is is basically uh, another form in which we are imprisoned within this dark organic uh world um she shows uh she lenny shows um uh Kay some portraits of judges that she has in her in her uh room and uh, these are portraits done. It turns out by a man named Titarelli, who's an artist. We'll see. We'll we'll, we'll hear about him later. Um, and the what Lenny tells Joseph K is: your only hope is to confess. Don't try to vindicate yourself. Don't try to be in it. Don't claim innocence. Your only hope is to confess, and I can only help you if you if you uh, uh, confess. So Joseph, uh, so K leaves. Uh, unhappy, and uh, it, at first he was sort of dismissive of this prosecution, but he becomes uh, increasingly uh, concerned about it to the point where he's obsessed with this uh, his uh, the 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 prosecution that that he is um, subject to, and he starts to write a kind of vindication of himself, and he starts to write in a sense an autobiography, but because he doesn't know what the law is. And he doesn't know what he's accused of. His autobiography is basically designed to uh, prove that he has never done anything wrong at all. And, of course, that's impossible. So he's engaged in this impossible process of justifying his entire life uh, because he's not sure what aspect of his life is the basis of this, uh, this uh, prosecution. One of his clients at the bank recommends that he go talk to Titarelli, who's the, who's the artist. And Titarelli has his uh, studio in the 
uh, second to the top floor of uh, another one of these tenements. As Joseph K. comes to visit him, he's swarmed by a group of adolescent girls. Again, this sort of sexual under undertow of the of the of the uh, of the novel. Uh, he's finally able to get into Titarelli's room. Titarelli is a kind of court artist. He paints pictures, paintings, flattering paintings of judges. Uh, the judges look much more powerful than they are in reality. They're bigger than they are in reality. Uh, they rise up looking angry and intimidating in his paintings. Um, there's, uh, and Titarelli admits that this isn't the way they look at all, but this is the way they want to be thought of as. And on the back of the throne of one of the judges, there is a, a uh, statue or carving of justice, uh, blindfold holding the scale, but on the, on the heels of the figure of justice are wings. So the justice is mobile. The, she is more representative of the goddess of the hunt than she is the goddess of, of, uh, of justice. And Titarelli explains to Joseph K. that no one is ever found guilty by the, by the, um, the court. Ever, no one is ever found innocent by the court. But there are ways of sort of, uh, of apparently gaining apparent acquittal, he calls it. And there are ways of delaying the proceedings indefinitely, uh, such that you can remain alive, although you are always under the um, un- under the in the in the eyes or on the radar screen of of the law. And you should give up ho- hope of trying to establish your innocence. And all you can hope to do is survive. Uh, using every while that you can, just as I survive as an artist, uh, painting these pictures that really aren't art at all. They're just uh, kitschy, uh, flattering pieces that are designed to satisfy uh, those who hold real power. Um, so that's 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 the course of the novel. At the end of the novel, uh, Joseph K. is dragged off by two uh, characters, uh, to a quarry outside the city. It's the it's his thirty first birthday. The prosecution began on his thirtieth birthday, and after this year has gone uh, by, uh, they bring him to the quarry and then engage in almost a sacrificial kind of murder. They plunge a knife through his uh, heart. But before that, the second to the last scene is probably the greatest scene. It's probably the most um, uh, often. Um, represented scene and it's in the cathedral uh joseph k goes to the cathedral to uh because he expects to meet someone there the person he actually meets is is a priest uh the priest explains to him that he is the court chaplain so religion is is allied with allied with the state uh so uh joseph k looks to the priest for some compassion uh, some guidance, some light in his situation. The priest basically says, I too belong to the law. And uh, so you shouldn't expect anything from me uh, other than um, uh, other than what you would expect from a functionary of the law itself. So there is no distinct salvation, if you want, in the in the realm of the relig- of religion. And the priest tells uh, tells Joseph K. a parable uh, which is called usually called before the law, and the, and and most folks say that this this parable is the heart of the 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 novel, um, and the uh, the parable they're very short. 
it's um, uh, it goes this way: a man from the country wants access to the law, but his way is blocked by a doorkeeper who wears a fur coat and has a large, sharply pointed nose and a long, thin, thin black Tatar's beard. The doorkeeper tells the man, I'm powerful, but I'm only the lowest doorkeeper. From hall to hall, however, stand doorkeepers, each more powerful than the one before. The mere sight of the third is more than I can bear. This doesn't seem right, says the man from the country. The law should be accessible to anyone at any time. And the man from the country continually begs admission, but dares not enter without the permission of the doorkeeper. He never receives it. The man languishes outside until his own death. No force is deployed against him. He is kept in ignorance of the law, it seems, only by his own inaction. K2 has been told throughout, by Hold and others, that action is impossible. Finally, the man from the country, as he dies, asks the doorkeeper why no one else has sought entrance through this gate. The doorkeeper sees that the man is nearing his end. And in order to reach his failing hearing, he roars at him. No one else could gain admittance here because this entrance was made solely for you. I'm going to shut it now. Uh, and then the priest and Joseph Kay engage in this back and forth, trying to interpret the meaning of the, of the parable. And it turns out there's no one resolution of the of the meaning, but it it has a religious quality, has has, to, has a political quality, um, and so that's that's in very inadequate outline the the plot of the of the trial. Maybe the best thing to do now is recount um, a story about a young man named David Saracino who faced a or sort of recount what he went through with the American justice system in 1994. And then we can uh, use that as a lens to analyze the connections between the trial and the criminal justice system. Okay. We, uh, there, there are a number of these, a uh, number of these kinds of examples in the course of the book. And there are uh, unfortunately hundreds more that uh, are, that can be found in other works. Saracino was, uh, an 18-year-old uh, high school student. Um, there had been a fire that appeared to be an arson fire of some school buses in his area. And for some reason, he was arrested and interrogated, brought to the police station and interrogated with regard to the fire. He was kept there for about uh, 10 hours. Uh, he denied any involvement and uh, the detectives, though, wouldn't accept his denials. Uh, we're not idiots. Don't bother wasting our time was their res- uh, response. Um, and this basically follows the playbook of the interrogation manuals that are broadly used uh, across uh, the United States, the Reed Inbow interrogation manuals. Basically, the premise of it is uh, begin with the premise that the person you're interrogating is guilty. Don't give him an opportunity to deny his involvement. You're, the, the presumption of guilt prevails. So you are only going to tell us why and how you did what we already know you did. We're, not going to, we're, we're just going to get angry at you if you try to uh, deny it. So they did that. They raised their voices for a long time. Um, 
they lied to him about the evidence they had, also common practice in interrogation. They said his fingerprints had been found uh, on the buses. They said that an accelerant, uh, a, a chemical that, that begin, allows fires to move more quickly, accelerant had been found on his boots. Uh, that was false. Uh, and when he tried to tell them that the boots belonged to his father, they said, we don't believe them either. Uh, we don't believe you on that either. Uh, he asked for an attorney. They said, you don't have a right to it. When his dad came down to the station to say, to make sure he had waived his right to an attorney, which is what the detective said, they said, yes, he had, which was uh, false. They threatened him. Uh, we're going to throw you into jail unless you, unless you confess. Uh, it would be like throwing a lamb to the lions. You'll be raped when you're in the jail. Uh, Saracino started to get to weaken, to see spots. He became nauseous. The detective said, you're nauseous only because you know that you're guilty. If you concede your guilt, you'll feel much better. Um, and eventually, Saracino said, well, do you want me, do you want me to lie? Uh, as he was breaking down, he was crying uncontrollably. Uh, is that what you're telling me to do? And one of the detectives said, well, you should do whatever you think is necessary and, and right. And at that point, when this has happened over and over again, uh, it, he began to fabricate a story to satisfy the detectives to get them uh, to to allow him uh, to leave, and uh, basically re uh, repeating and trying to weave into something vaguely coherent the details that the detectives had actually um, fed him. Uh, that confession was uh, entered against him at trial, as is the case in about 80% of cases. Um, uh, in which a confession is offered, the defendant was the defendant was uh, convicted. Um, although a lot of other, other other evidence pointed away from him, Justice Brennan remarked that really a confession is really the most powerful and devastating of the prosecution's possible uh, evidence. And um, while all this happened, and so he was he was convicted, and while his case was on appeal. Uh, the true perpetrators were discovered. Uh, private investigators found that four others had actually set the fire. They had gotten a confession from one of them who agreed to uh, testify against the other two. And that information was uh, suppressed so that the, uh, the, 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 the courts and the lawyers uh, who were prosecuting Saraceno were not aware that they had learned that another, there was another confession. But by this time, the statute of limitations for the bringing of the case against the others had run, and the prosecutor, based, the prosecution, basically continued to push the um, and resist the uh, the, the Saraceno, Saraceno's claim of innocence. Eventually, um, he was uh, when the information with regard to the other confessions came to light. His um, his conviction was overturned. Um, but the prosecutors threatened further prosecution of Saraceno unless he pled no contest to a lesser bus fire uh, charge. When he refused, they, and this is really the most Kafkaesque aspect of this, they offered him a deal requiring him that he, that he plead guilty to the misdemeanor of, quote, hindering prosecution by falsely confessing and receive a suspended uh, a sentence. Uh, and he took the deal uh, because he, was, he just wanted to end this uh, surreal prosecution. 
stop draining the family finances of uh, represent uh, uh, to pay for lawyers to defend him. And so what happened was he pled guilty uh, to making a false confession, which was coerced improperly by the detectives who were interrogating him in order to end the uh, the ordeal. And why, why did that all happen? Because they wanted some expression of fault or guilt from Saraceno so that they could deflect the, the charges against uh, themselves. Um, um, and, uh, and so he was convicted of a relatively minor crime because of the misconduct of the agents of the of the prosecution, uh, and that's an example of a, a lens through which you can see uh, some of the Kafkaesque aspects of of the American uh, criminal justice system. Could you go through now some of the fundamental issues in political and legal philosophy that appear in the trial, and how these issues recur in a somewhat different key in our own legal system? Yeah, the, the the big argument at the time Kafka was a, a law student uh, uh, was between sort of two schools of thought. One was a sort of positivist <clears throat> school of thought that said the law should be clear and the the rules should be sharp edged and uh, positivist positivistic. That is, the the judge should apply the law as written and should not go beyond the law that's written. So, a kind of bureaucratic what we would call mechanical jurisprudence on the one hand, and there were those who, who supported that understanding of the law. And then there was, there was a notion that was supported by other of the theorists of the times, the so-called free law, uh, free law principle, that is, that a, that a judge should be able to uh, do the right thing, if you want, to consult his own moral intuitions uh, without being overly constrained by the law. Uh, and we have we have similar we have a similar kind of argument that takes place uh, today um, that supports uh, between those who uh, support what Justice Scalia calls the rule of law as a law of rules that support the benefits of the criminal law, especially being clear and predetermined and applied in a fairly mechanical way, on the one hand, and those who. Uh, support a uh, a set of procedures by which ordinary moral intuitions can be more relevant to especially criminal law determinations. And often that involves relying on the jury, uh, which changes the whole picture. Now, what occurred in Germany and in Austria was that the notion of free law was made ideological by the the judges on the courts under national socialism those were the old uh, they were the old prussian judges they were conservative in their sensibilities and they took this notion of of relying not on the letter of the law but on uh, one's moral sensibility and said the moral sensibilities are those that are dictated by the nazi ideology and so uh, the sort of free law or discretionary uh, theories were invoked after the rise of Hitler to justify the uh, use of the criminal law for ideological purposes and for um, to to execute basically uh, Jews uh, and anyone else who was viewed to be, have 
to be a wrong thinking person in that they did not embrace the fundamental principles of national socialism. So that's what gave, that's how that free law discretionary principle came to be distorted in the in the Nazi era. And to to anticipate where uh, we'll, we'll we can take a step back, but to anticipate what my final argument in the book is is uh, our reliance on the jury trial gives us a path through those uh, those that contrast between a mechanical jurisprudence on the one hand and per, a potentially bureaucratic and ideological <clears throat> application of mechanical mechanical application of pre-existent laws on the other because. The jury is not likely to be um, an ideological agent. They are they are laymen. They are, there are there are twelve of them. They can rely on their moral intuitions in the sense that the free law uh, notion uh, hoped to advance without the expectation that they um, are adherents of a single ideology. So you're going to get a uh, a full elevation of common sense judgment. Uh, that softens and um, renders the law more subtle and refined and uh, more consistent with uh, uh, life world moral values. And that's an opportunity that Kafka's world did not have because the jury had been abolished uh, in Austria-Hungary in the in late 19th century. It was abolished in Germany in the 1940s. Um, and so what the jury does is protects us against the uh, making that kind of uh, intuitive moral judgment that imp- an important aspect of the application of the criminal law, it makes it, uh, it, it is, it is a, 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 a path that we have that they, they could not follow, that, that Kafka didn't know and that was not available in Central Europe. Would you, would you, want, you want me to try to um, uh, describe in just sort of broad outline the way the characteristics of Kafka's law in the in the novel and and how those are replicated in uh, in our law. There's a long chapter in the book in which I sort of go through the various aspects of our criminal justice system and say, in in many too many ways, it reflects what's worse about Kafka's law. Would that be helpful? Yes, that would be great. Okay. All right. So, so let, if, if, if I could just sort of go through them very, very quickly, uh, what, what are the characteristics of the, of the law? And it's often capitalized, uh, the, the law uh, in Kafka's novel. Okay? These are the main characteristics. It's unknowable. You, you can't know uh, ahead of time what it is that it requires. And so the only way to avoid being the victim of the law is being perfect. And of course, no one's perfect. And so everyone is subject to this unknowable law. It's ubiquitous. It's everywhere. And that's in the, in the novel, uh, we see law offices intertwined with uh, tenement apartments and with Titarelli's studio. There's no escaping it. It's, it's everywhere. It's bureaucratic. It's run by officials. So the, the room that, um, Kay initially thought was filled with lay people is actually filled with officials. And the law is administered by these bureaucrats who live in this, who function in this world uh, isolated from ordinary life, isolated from the light of day in this sort of Warren 
uh, of offices. It functions, it's informal. It does not take the formalities of the legal process seriously. Uh, it isn't bound by procedure in any kind of uh, recognizable way. It relies on deception. Uh, everyone is, uh, the law is continually deceiving uh, the, those that are subject uh, to it. Um, the the function of defense counsel is marginalized. There's a there's a little um, uh, a section in which basically uh, Hull, the lawyer, sort of is ruminating about whether or not the defense is actually tolerated in the uh, at all under this law. And there's a wonderful satirical. Uh, episode in which the the lawyer's room is described and the lawyer's room is basically designed to dispirit the the criminal defense bar and make them ineffective in actually representing the the citizens that they're uh, represented the facts of the case are irrelevant so um, you could at first you don't know what facts could be relevant because you don't know what the law is and the judgment that the law is going to present uh, present seems to be casual about what the facts are about. The law is very interested in who you are, what kind of person you are, broadly speaking, not what you have uh, done. The law is assimilated to the divinity. So the law functions like God. So the state functions in a divine kind of way. And so the kind of humility that is appropriate in the religious context and the basic principle that religion urges us to walk humbly before the Lord, that humility is manipulated into submission to the state. And the, uh, the, the law takes advantage of that, our sense, our religious sensibility and our psychological uh, weakness, especially if isolated and taken out of, out of our ordinary roles, uh, to, dominate, uh, to dominate completely. And finally, the, the law tells us that uh, it's necessary. There's a dialogue between Joseph K. and the priest in which uh, Joseph K. says, you can't really believe that I should submit to the court or confess to the court when, when I'm uh, not guilty. And uh, that would make lying into a universal system. And the priest says, no, you don't have to accept the truth of what it is that the law is saying. You just have to accept its necessity. So it's it's inevitability. Uh, so those are the characteristics of of the the law in the in the in the book. And um, you, you want me to just try to summarize briefly the way in which our actual system relates to that? Yes, that's perfect. Okay. Okay. So uh, one, um, I, I should say that there's I should say before I do that, there's one great scene in which. Uh, Joseph K. is talking to Hold, and Hold basically says, "You've got to conceive of this, of the what it is that you face as a vast or organism. Um, uh, it would it wastes your time to try to change anything. The only proper approach is to learn ex- to accept existing conditions. So this is the necessity aspect of it. Uh, even if it were possible to improve specific details, which is an absurd superstition." Uh, one would have at best achieved something uh, for future cases while in the process damaging oneself immeasurably by attracting the attention of an always vengeful bureaucracy. Don't attract attention. Uh, 
try to realize that this vast judicial organism remains, so to speak, in the state of eternal equilibrium. So that if you change one thing on your where you are, you can cut the ground out from where you are somewhere else. So it's unchangeable. Okay. So how how what are the characteristics of American law that that are like this? I argue that large swaths of American law, both substance and procedure, are truly unknowable. That that is, they are suffused with so much discre- so much so much discretionary determinations by uh, judges. They are so complex. Uh, there are so many rules and exceptions to rules and exceptions to exceptions to rules that what appears to be the law really isn't. So in the, the whole area of search and, uh, search and seizure, um, uh, the generalization uh, that uh, we should be safe and secure in our houses and persons and effects dies a death by a thousand qualifications. The protection against... Um, interrogations and and involuntary confessions also dies a death by a thousand qualifications such that the constitutional rules and the Miranda uh, warnings are basically useless in uh, in practice. The the law of evidence as it applies in the trial basically is so shot through with discretionary determinations that it really doesn't control or or limit what it is the trial judge uh, does. The the substantive law of the substantive criminal law is so vast and addresses so many different uh, aspects of uh, of our lives uh, that w- one can- cannot but be violating the criminal law um, in in virtually everything that you do. And if you we want one example, the last three presidents of the United States have admitted that they violated our drug laws at one point uh, or another, and they weren't prosecuted for that. But, but so um, basically uh, because the criminal law has been looked to as the go-to uh, means to solve our social problems across such a wide swath of areas that we now have an, a ubiquitous criminal law uh, that any individual is dependent upon solely the um, good graces of prosecutors for not being uh, uh, prosecuted. So it's hard. To, it's it's uh, it's impossible for the the uh, an individual actually to know either the procedural law or the substantive law, criminal law that he the uh, faces. It's bureau, it's bureaucratic. Uh, the police departments and the prosecutors' offices are are highly bureaucratic. Sentences are set at a very high level of generality. Discretion is taken away from juries and judges in imposing uh, sentences um, such that these decisions with regard to sentencing are made at 35,000 feet and then imposed mechanically uh, with, with truly awful results at, at the trial uh, level. Um, deception, uh, it's, it's informal. Only 5% of our criminal cases go to trial, 95% of them are resolved, if you want to call it that, through bureaucratic means, through interrogation, followed by uh, plea bargaining. The Saraceno case shows that the the devices by which confessions are extracted are highly um, uh, informal. They rely upon psychological manipulation and and deception. They rely upon our our weakness, uh, our psychological weakness when isolated and pressured 
in, with that kind of um, cagey uh, uh, strategic uh, way. Um, the um, uh, so uh, people are interrogated using and and courts permit this now, allowing the interrogators to deceive the those who are being questioned. Uh, the jury is kept in the dark as to the consequences of their their determination. They don't know what sentences are. The defense counsel is in many ways uh, marginalized. Um, the uh, and there's uh, um, some uh, argument that these uh, th- this whole panoply of of uh, uh, features of our criminal justice system are inevitable and can't be can't truly be uh, uh, changed. Could you um, briefly talk about the results of this Kafka system and the social background against which one in every hundred Americans um, is imprisoned? Yeah, um, here here's a pretty good description of it. Um, the um, See the practice of what what's happened since uh, the late seventies uh, are, are, is uh, a practice of controlling crime, doing justice, have had to adapt to an increasingly insecure economy that marginalizes substantial sections of the population, to a hedonistic consumer culture that combines extensive personal freedom with relaxed social control, to a pluralistic moral order that struggles to create trust relationship between strangers who have little in common to a sovereign state that is increasingly incapable of regulating a society of of individuated citizens and differentiated social groups and to chronically high crime rates that coexist with low levels of family cohesion and community solidarity. The risky insecure character of today's social and economic relations is the social surface that gives rise to our new, emphatic, overreaching concern with control and to the urgency with which we segregate, fortify, and exclude. So to the extent that um, our uh, economic and social lives become more anarchic, become more uh, atomistic, uh, to that extent, uh, the uh, criminal law is looked to as the only reliable device by which to achieve some level of, of peace and security in, in society. So um, uh, one author, uh, Winifred Sullivan, has the argument that um, uh, especially in, I think of, you, can, you can think of some, uh, some particular states in this, uh, the, the, the more the state is given to purely uh, free market or neoliberal uh, economics and the less willing to uh, devote resources to uh, 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 social services and um, to um, maintaining a labor force that isn't whose salaries are not dictated solely by uh, the free market. To, in those states, you have the most severe likelihood of a very harsh criminal justice system. You're more likely to have the death penalty you're going to have a higher incarceration rate because the, the that kind of uh, economic and social acid that destroys the ties that individuals have to the community and the security those individuals have in um, in being able to uh, live a, a decent 
uh, life, the social peace can be maintained, or so it's perceived, only through a especially harsh criminal justice system. And um, our our economic system has something to do with that, and our religious tradition has something to do with that uh, as as uh, as well. Okay. Um, now, could you offer us some antidotes to um, in the American or some resources we have in the American criminal procedures tradition? Yeah. Some some of my reviewers, by the way, thought that the the last part of the book, which offers some hope, um, uh, was was not as convincing as the part of the book that describes how how uh, how dark our situation is. Um, but I think it's important uh, not just to end on a dark note. I think it's uh, regardless of um, the likelihood of, uh, of the countermeasures that we may have uh, being successful. Uh, it's important to uh, to make those make those efforts. Um, there there are aspects of our tradition that that were unavailable in Central Europe and unavailable to Kafka. Uh, one, as I said, is the institution of the of the jury. Um, there, you can bring a non ideological common sense to bear uh, on uh, in the area of the criminal justice system. That was much more the case in the early 20th century and late 19th century before we began this politicized, bureaucratized expansion of uh, the criminal justice system uh, as we have it. So that's a resource that um, was unavailable to Kafka. In order to realize it, though, we have to have other, um, what one writer calls spaces of freedom, uh, open up uh, more opportunities for that institution to function. So 95% of our cases should not be resolved by interrogation following, followed by plea bargaining. More of them should be subject to the community values, uh, community determination um, by local, uh, local juries. But for that to happen, you've got to have legislatures and appellate courts on board. And uh, we know that... Um, uh, the, the both of those institutions are pressured by um, the uh, the influx of uh, money into the both the, the legislative process and into the the process of an election of judges. It make it it makes those forums, both legislatures and and appellate courts, less and less free. They're not spaces of freedom anymore. They're subject to the same kind of deterministic pressures that Kafka uh, uh, satirized so that legislators uh, are not truly free because of the um, constraints under which they have to operate. More and more judges aren't free either. And uh, studies have shown that the the level of criminal convictions increases as uh, the date for judicial elections uh, approach. Uh, the Supreme Court has allowed money to pour into those uh, races, and the Supreme Court has basically uh, ruled as well that judges can, cam- can, can campaign the same way that legislatures legislators uh, can. Now, that could be viewed as just just a fine practice of American democracy, but I view that as um, as driven by uh, de- determinants. Uh, financial determinants and economic determinants that render those forums unfree and render, render them 
no longer capable of making um, decent decisions with regard to the exercise of our criminal justice system. They become part of, as Kafka would put it, one vast organism uh, whose determinants are economic and and uh, uh, financial, um, and th- that's the struggle. Um, to to what to what extent can we bring some level of democracy and local moral judgment back into the criminal justice system when doing that requires uh, a, a sign a sign on from appellate courts and legislators legislatures that are under increasingly under different uh, uh, practices under different pressures also you need the sign in of prosecutors offices and uh, prosecutors offices have been themselves subject to these kinds of mass uh, popular uh, penal populism is the phrase that is the success of using a harsher criminal justice um, as a campaign slogan bureaucratized into the policies of prosecutors offices so those those institutions police police departments prosecutors have got to become more democratized democratized themselves there have been some suggestions as to how that might be done um, and they have to be more respectful of formality of formalisms that protect individual rights when they deal with um, uh, with with uh, with suspects in the criminal justice system right well I feel like we've only really scratched the surface on a very complex and important issue so I would suggest to any listener that it it would be very useful to actually read the book because all these topics, um, Professor Burns goes into a lot more depth and analysis. Um, but to conclude the interview, I'd love to know what you're working on now. <laughs> I, I've got a I've got a few projects going, um, all continuous really with this Kafka book. Um, one is a uh, a. a a consideration of the relationship between democracy and bureaucracy in the United States. Um, what what kinds what forms of social ordering uh, must we rely on bureaucracies to effect for us, uh, and uh, what kinds of forums ought to be in what kinds of uh, what kind of forums are available for so democratic input into that into our forms of social ordering. So what's the right balance, interpenetration of democracy and bureaucracy? And of course, this isn't just in the criminal justice area, but in lots of, uh, in lots of areas. So that's, that's one, that's one uh, set of issues. Another ish set of issues is the, um, is this, this whole idea of what's called political theology, the relationship between religious sensibilities, religious themes, uh, and um, the way we understand our relationship to the state, um, to what extent uh, has the state hijacked religious uh, ideals in its own purposes? What's what's the proper relationship between uh, religious ideals and religious sensibilities and political ideals and political and legal sensibilities? That's that's number two. And number three is is a long-term project on what you might call um, a, a theory of or a philosophy of procedure. What 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 is procedure, and and how should we um, how what does procedure do for us? And in of course in Kafka's book there is no procedure. Uh, so what what should procedure do for us? Uh, how should it function in the administrative 
context and the civil context of civil litigation and the context of criminal uh, litigation um, and what should it what should it accomplish and how can we make sure that decisions are are fair decisions through the use of the artifice or uh, uh, artificiality of procedure and how can we use procedure to elevate the determinations of uh, ordinary people in juries and in other contexts as well. I, th- I think that's what procedure does. So our decisions are not just the, the plaything of mass journalism and propaganda. Our decisions are the result of a of a case that is actually presented in a fair way uh, to ordinary citizens to make up uh, make up their minds. Well, those sound like extremely fascinating, and I think very, very, very important works and things that. We need to be thinking about, and I think uh, I know your reviewer said the hopeful part was less convincing, but I think <laughs> acknowledging and analyzing these is- issues and trying to work through balancing bureaucracy and democracy are just ex- extremely. That's I, that's hopeful that someone's doing that to me. Um, well, and I, I go ahead. Oh no, go ahead, please. No, I just appreciate those kind words, uh, Siobhan. I really want to thank you for being on the show today. It's been delightful. Thank you.